I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. Today, we're talking with Mike Boyle, former strength and conditioning coach for Boston University, the United States women's Olympic ice hockey team, the Boston Bruins, and the Boston Red Sox. Now at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in Boburn, Massachusetts, Boyle trains professional athletes from across sports alongside athletes from Little League to Senior League and regular folks who just want to be fit. As one of the foremost experts in the world of strength and conditioning, Boyle is known for his no-nonsense approach and focus on safe, efficient, and effective training. Hey, Mike, how's it going? It is going good. How are you? I am just peachy down here in New Jersey. I hope you're in uh, Massachusetts, right? I'm in Massachusetts. Yes, I am. And life is good so far. So we don't have a mask mandate in town yet, although some surrounding towns do. So that's how I'm uh, gauging my life right now. You'll have to cover up that awesome beard you're rocking. I know it's time to actually shave. I'm just, I'm just awesomely lazy. (laughs) It's all right. It looks good. It's very distinguished. You got like a little like Sean Connery going there. Yeah, a little, I was going to either Sean Connery or I'm working on Santa Claus, depending on how you want to look at (laughs) it. Well, you got a ways to go for that. So I, I said in the intro, I gave a little bit of, of your background and all the teams and stuff that you've worked with. And you obviously own your own training facility now in Massachusetts, still working with a lot of professional athletes, but also a lot of normal people too. Just give us a little bit about your background way back, how you became a strength and conditioning coach. So I am in year 40, which is crazy. <laughs> I started, I was very, very lucky to start in strength and conditioning right out of college when strength and conditioning really was just sort of an idea that I didn't, I knew two guys who had jobs actually had gotten, and they were both part-time. Neither one of them had gotten a full-time strength and conditioning job. Strangely enough, wow. one of them, Mike Wojcik ended up being the longest tenured guy in the NFL, just retired with the Cowboys with six Super Bowl rings at one. I would say he was tied with Brady until the last Super Bowl and uh, Brady outlasted him. But then <laughs> Rusty Jones was still in Indianapolis. Both of those guys were two of the longest tenured guys in the NFL And they were at Springfield college when I was there and they got jobs as they were kind of part-time rusty was working. This will date us the Pittsburgh Maulers in the USFL and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Mike was working at Syracuse as the track field event coach and the strength coach for Dick McPherson at Syracuse. And I thought, this is like a real thing. I'm going to get a chance to do this. So I'm really part of that first generation of guys. I was a part-time coach for probably eight years at Boston University almost exclusively. And then right about the same time, BU gave me a full-time job and the Bruins offered me a part-time job. So then I had a a quote-unquote full-time job and a part-time job. And I worked nine years for the Bruins while I worked at BU, which again, in that era you could do because people were very happy to have sort of a part-time person who'd show up and just help the guys with whatever you were supposed to be helping the guys with. I don't think people had any idea what we were supposed to be doing anyway. We were like the weight guy or that was kind of how we were referred to. And I just kept kind of rolling along. Obviously I got into hockey at Boston university and that became kind of my thing, which was unusual because my dad was a basketball coach and I was a swimmer and a football player. So I've been, I've been in a lot of unfamiliar places that I've become really familiar with over the years. I worked for the Red Sox for a couple of years and managed to get a world series ring out of that. Again, another area where I was probably theoretically less than an expert. So I've just been kind of, 
dabbling around the last 40 years. <laughs> dabbling. So you, you say you're less than an expert in those particular sports, but you still, what you are an expert in is getting athletes ready to compete. And that obviously has evolved quite a bit over the years. Like back in the day, you said you were the weight guy and I'm assuming guys, not everyone was utilizing you. How has that evolved over the years to where we're at today with everyone having an individualized program? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's changed so much. When I first started, again, when I first started at Boston University, it was very much voluntary for most teams. And that was one of the big things we started trying to work on was, okay, everybody's got to do it. We've got to get everybody involved in this process. And then it's funny, we were strength coaches and then we were strength and conditioning coaches. And then some people started to refer to us. I always give Mark Verstegen credit for making us performance enhancement specialists, <laughs> coined that term. But we started to get involved in conditioning. We got started to get involved in nutrition. We started to get involved in sports psychology. I think we really did dabble in a whole bunch of areas. Now they call that a high performance model when you have somebody who, who's running all of these things. But I think there were a lot of us who were running high performance models before high performance models were fashionable and we're figuring out, okay, what should our athletes be eating? Trying to work with guys on sleeping, trying to work on recovery. There were, we were doing everything primarily out of necessity. And I've kept doing everything primarily probably out of obstinance more than necessity in terms of when I say I, I'm not an expert, but sometimes I feel like I'm more of an expert than a lot of the experts. So sometimes I, I look at the people who are maybe trying to help us and feel like, Sometimes they come out of a, the wrong, an unfamiliar field and don't understand the landscape. I think one of the things I've been really good at is coming into an unfamiliar field, but understanding the landscape and figuring the guys out, figuring the athletes out, figuring out a lot of it is figuring out what makes guys tick or women. Because again, I've had a lot of experience with our female athletes too, and figuring out how they take in information. What do they want what do they need? Because sometimes what they want isn't what they need. And then trying to <laughs> how to get them to do what they need and maybe modify what it is they think they want. How do you as a coach look at an individual athlete, male, female, hockey, baseball, boxing, whoever else comes into your facility and decide what it is that they need? I think you have to talk to them. This is a very much a relationship game. And you have to get to a point where you can engage in a conversation with the person and figure out, because again, I think it goes back to the idea what they want or what they think they need generally is not what they need. And so now you're trying to convince somebody, I understand what you want, but let's talk about how to maybe get you there. And the road to getting you there may not be the one that you think that it is. So again, that ability to relate to people and to have a conversation and to understand their backgrounds and what's important to them is really, I always say this is much more of a soft skill job than a hard skill job because it doesn't matter really what you know. It only matters what you can get people to do. I think there's a lot of really intelligent failures in our field, people who don't succeed. And a lot of it is because they lack the relationship ability. I can remember when I went to the Red Sox, one of the things that I did, and I've said this a bunch of times, people, but I read the media guide every day of spring training. And I read about players and where they were from and whether they had kids, whether they had played, you know, where they'd been the year before, just trying to develop as much information as I could so that I could engage in a conversation with them that would hopefully then let me lead them where I thought it was they needed to go. Okay. And most of these times when you're saying lead an athlete where they need to go, 
is this a physical thing where they're trying to develop more speed or more power or be better prepared to play their sport? Or is this a mental thing where they just need to maybe work a little harder or tone it down? I think it's a combination, generally speaking, of the two of those. So I think you kind of hit it on the head in terms of it is rarely sometimes with a physical thing, it's things that they're not doing because one of the things that we talk about a lot, and obviously we've had, you and I have had a bunch of conversations, but I always talk about the idea that training is very much a recipe versus a menu and that I don't want people to pick. You can't decide, okay, I want to do this. I don't want to do this. Everything needs to go into the recipe to make the end product right. And so getting out athletes to understand that part that, Hey, this is important. And why that's going to be really important. And then, as you said, the, the psychological part, getting them to trust you. One of the things you get into with professional athletes is they look at everybody a little bit sideways now because everybody's coming in and saying, Hey, you know, I, I guess the, the expression is everybody wants a piece <laughs> of them. So how is the work that you do now with pro athletes in their off seasons different than what you used to do with them during the season? Well, it's different one. Now I always say in season is like going to the dentist. People don't want to be there. They go because they have to go. They go either because someone is making them or they go because they think it's important, but the focus for them is on the game and on what's going to happen next. And they just sort of view you as, yeah, I got to get in there twice a week kind of guy. Then when you get to off season, I was, I wrote an article one time called the dentist and the ice cream man. Mm-hmm. And I said, you get to switch from being the dentist to being the ice cream man. You get from to switch from being the guy that nobody wants to see to the guy that everybody wants to see. And for us, we're almost exclusively off season people now because of the way that it is. We're not working for a team. I don't have to look at somebody in major league baseball and say, okay, it's March. And we got to figure out what we're going to do till October. And like when they're in that like maintenance phase where they're barely doing yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're trying to figure out, especially in baseball, how little can I do to keep what I need to keep? so that I can keep playing. Cause I have to play a game every day. Baseball is you have obviously been around baseball a long time. But baseball is very, very unique in the sense that the guys are playing every day, but even in the NHL or in the NBA dealing with travel and fatigue, there's just a lot more stuff that goes on in those leagues at that time that somebody who now is a, an off season specialist, isn't really dealing with that. As an off season person, if a baseball player or a hockey player come to you in the off season, how different is the training for athletes from different sports when you're talking about generally being physically prepared to play, but there is a different component to the skill sets of, of each of those sports. I would say it's really minimal. I always talk to every time I talk about this or write about this, I say it's 80, 20 in terms of 80% of it is going to be very much the same. 20% of it is going to be different. And the 20% varies from sport to sport with baseball There's a big arm care component in terms of everybody's worried about their shoulder. Everybody's worried about their arm and you need to understand that. So you need to kind of insert that arm care component into their program. If for no other reason than to make them comfortable that you know what you're doing. And then when you get into say hockey, there's a really big conditioning component that is not as present in other sports. Hockey is a really unusual sport in the sense that you get these 45 to 50 minute shifts of really, really high intensity activity and other sports don't have that. Football is going to have seven seconds. Baseball is going to have literally (laughs) seconds of, I mean, you know, from somebody like home to second is going to be a really long run for somebody in a baseball game. So that's the 20% that's different, but we really try to focus on the 80% that's the same and try to look at these guys and think, okay, you've got to get strong and you've got to get powerful and you've got to get fast and you've got to 
do your injury prevention work. You've got to do all the stuff that you're supposed to do and not, not get too caught up in the minutia. What percentage of time do you think, and I'm sure this is going to be different off season and, and in season, but let's say off season, what percentage of an athlete's time is spent practicing skills for their sport? And what percentage is spent training to be stronger, faster, more mobile, more efficient at performing those skills? I would say for our hockey guys, we're probably spending twice as much time training as they are doing skill work during the summer. They might, I mean, a big week for them might be four hours of on ice work and eight hours with us. And even four hours, it could be three hours of on ice work and eight hours with us. So I think in baseball for a long time, there's probably nothing that's going on from a skill standpoint at all, because their off season is really short and sometimes it's okay. It's time to pick up the ball again and at least start throwing the ball around and get my arm ready to go back to spring training. And they'll do, I would say a lot of baseball guys might do very, very little baseball related stuff. They might get in the cage and hit a little bit. They'll throw and get their arm ready. So it really, I think again, can be, that's the stuff that can be a little bit unique sport to sport. And that's one of the reasons I think you really do need to understand the game and you need to understand the psychology of the game. Because again, the game is one thing. The psychology of the game is another thing. What are these guys looking for? The baseball guys, a lot of times are looking for, they want to get away from baseball because baseball is in your face eight months out of the year. It's, there's nothing. And I only spent two years in major league baseball, but one thing I can tell you is there's nothing like the grind of major league baseball in other professional sports. They're just and people, whenever people kind of make fun of baseball players and talk about, oh, they're out of shape or they're not good athletes. And I'm like, you, one, you have no idea what you're talking about. They're probably the best athletes in sport. They may not always look like the best athletes in yeah. sport, but they are probably some of the best athletes in sport. And they're doing something that is just ungodly in terms of playing a game almost every single day. I think it's 162 games in 180 days or something like that. Well, and it's 162 games. Once the season starts, they're also in spring training for most of them. Eight weeks could be more like 192 games. Yeah. And then the baffling part for me about spring training is that they train for 180 days or whatever of night games with eight weeks of being at the ballpark at 7am makes zero sense. That's where you have to understand the psychology of the game. (laughs) Because I can't tell you how many times I heard during the course of my two years with the Red Sox, well, that's baseball. You hear that all the time from baseball people. When you ask them a question about something, they'll go, that's baseball. And sometimes they just look at them and think, does baseball have to be that way? Can we not change baseball a little bit? Is there any requirement, some sort of ruling from on high that says we got to do it the way it was done every year at spring training for the last whatever number of years? But it is bizarre. They want to get there. And guys get there and they're all excited when they get there. I can't tell you how many guys said, I'm going four days a week all through spring training. And they go four days a week for the first two weeks. And then in about week three, they say, I'm going to cut down to three. And then in week four, they're like, I'm going to go to my in-season two-day-a-week program. And I was always like, yeah, that's fine. Because I knew that your four-day-a-week all spring training thing was a little bit optimistic. (laughs) What we need to do is just sort of settle into that two-day-a-week rhythm, which is what we need to do to make it work. I do think the hockey guys, in my experience, they get in and lift a little bit more often than that during their season. I would say, yeah, it could be two. It could be three. It kind of depends. I mean, we've had so many weird seasons now with compressed seasons and COVID seasons and all these things that I don't know in a normal season where you're going to get your 84 games spread out from October to probably late April. 
guys can work out maybe three days a week if they want to. But I was, I've always been a pretty, if you can give me two days a week during the season, I will be 100% happy. I don't need any more than that. And in a lot of cases, I don't want any more than that. I think sometimes you'd be better off with the rest than you would with the work. Cause that's the other thing we have to, I always talk about the idea that what we forget about with strength and conditioning is that it's basic biology. It's stimulus response. It's not stimulus, 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 stimulus. And people forget about response and the idea that, okay, I need to apply a stimulus to you. And that stimulus could be a game. It could be a practice. It could be a weight workout, whatever it is. But what you do in response to that is probably as critical as the stimulus itself was. And that's the part when you talked about the idea with these guys, with nutrition, with recovery, with all these things. And it's trying to get, in some cases, I felt like you have to protect. Yeah, some guys you have to motivate and get them to do what you want them to do. Other guys, you have to protect them from themselves. Other guys, you have to say, okay, enough is enough. I only need to see it twice a week. You don't need, because again, you get very different mental makeups. You get some people, if they were always been the most gifted person in the game, they may have gotten there with very, very little work. They may have rode the talent wave right to the top and kind of look at you and think, I really haven't had to do anything to get here. And then you've got to sell that person on the idea. Well, let's stay here. Let's stay here for 10 years. Let's stay here for 12 years. Let's go to the hall of fame. And so you're always looking at everybody and figuring out, as I said, what makes, what's making this particular person tick because especially in the pro sports world. And I've said this a lot too, as a pro strength and conditioning coach, you have to understand that everybody got there without you. So they did something right. Now that could have been, as I said, that could have been just rode the genetic wave of mom and dad right to wherever they were. And it could have been, they grinded it out and they worked really hard and they did everything they were supposed to do. And they came up through the system and played all the minor league games and did all that stuff, but you need to know which guy is which. So you can be prepared to deal with those people on their own kind of individual platforms. When, now that you're, you have your own facility, you have a lot of people who are just normal folks who come in there to be fit. And you have a lot of pros in there sometimes working out at the same time as those people. What is it in the grand scope of things that separates pro athletes from the rest of us? Oh, 100% genetics. <laughs> <laughs> it's God given. <laughs> yes, uh, it really is. And uh, there's a really good book called The Genius in All of Us. And, and the guy, I think the guy's name was Shank that wrote the book. But one of the things that he says in the book is that it's genetics times environment. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, if you can get someone who has really good genetics and then you can put them in really good environments to succeed, those are going to be your highest achievers, but there are going to be some people who just have superior genetics. I, I did a talk on this a couple of years ago. And one of the things I alluded to is the number of number of guys that you see in the NHL draft who are children of NHLers. Keith Kachuk has two sons mm-hmm. that are playing. There's just a lot of guys. One year, I think there were, I think there were five or six first rounders whose dads all played in the league. And your dad playing in the league is a really big advantage, not because it's political or because he knows somebody it's because he had the genetic material to play in the national hockey league. And I think that makes a really big difference. And I think over time you'll see, you look at the Guerrero, right? I mean, there's, there's so many of these guys that you can look at and think you've got a massive head start when you have that genetic capability. I always wonder if guys like Guerrero jr. And, you know, say looking at Keith Kachuk's kids, like if they traded parents, 
if the son of the hockey player was raised by the baseball player and the son of the baseball player was raised by the hockey player, are they genetically gifted athletically for any sport? Or is that specific to, does it just come from the nature versus nurture? Is it nurture that decides the sport that you're going to And, and I, would, I think that's the genetics times environment thing. I think yeah. there is. I think if you probably had thrown Vlad Guerrero Jr. into Keith Kachuk's bassinet on the way out of the uh, thing, <laughs> probably be a Vlad Guerrero Jr., Playing on the first line someplace, just like his kids are. I wonder if someone would let us do this experiment. Yeah, I don't think so. Just so you know, I think we'd get in a lot of trouble (laughs) dropping kids. But I do believe that that's exactly what would happen because, I mean, obviously the environment matters in terms of those kids were brought up in a hockey environment. That's why they're playing hockey. How do you train your normal people differently than your pros? Effectively, we don't. The one thing that we don't do, and this is uh, unlike... From a CrossFit standpoint, and I know you by may uh, hit some sensitive spots here, but we don't Olympic lift our adults. I always say adults don't make good Olympic lifters. Well, especially not if they're learning it as adults. Right. That's what I mean. And that's why I was, it's funny because I have a bunch of guys that played for me at Boston University who love CrossFit because we taught them how to Olympic lift. Mm -hmm. They're like, I, you know, I went to CrossFit and I was great. I kicked everybody's ass the first day. Cause I could clean and I could jerk and I could squat. I could do everything I needed to do, but we train our adults very much like our athletes, but we train our athletes very different from the way a lot of other people train their mm-hmm. athletes in terms of, we don't back squat anymore with our athletes. Uh, we generally don't, I would say with our professional athletes, we don't Olympic lift as much anymore. We will have the rare athlete that does, but I always feel like, again, Olympic lifting is one of those things you need to learn to Olympic lift when you're in your teens, I think. And then it's a skill that you can kind of carry through later on. Like Jack Eichel, who grew up training with us, would continue to clean. And he'd still clean 300 pounds. I don't know about this year. I haven't seen him this year with his neck thing. But, you know, in general, kids that are good Olympic lifters when they're young will be good Olympic lifters later on. But to take a guy in his 20s and try to make him into a good Olympic lifter is going to take you a lot of time that probably is going to be better spent doing something else. Well, and there's also so many exercises you can do that mimic those movements, but are not those movements. Exactly. For us, we've become big trap bar jump fans. I love trap bar jumps. I love, so our adults are the big thing with our adults versus our athletes is the power development process in terms of how we're going to approach power development with our adult clientele is going to be different. We do not tend to sprint our adults because again, I'm not, when I look at again, particularly the males, our kind of the 30 to 50 year old male is prime Achilles tendon rupture territory. So if we start getting these guys sprinting the way that we sprint our, our young pros, we're probably going to create some Achilles tendon ruptures as opposed to prevent some. So uh, a lot of their higher intensity interval stuff will tend to be on an assault bike or on an air dye. We'll do basic plyometric exercises, but we won't probably get as as advanced as we get with our adults or with our athletes rather. So those are the kind of big rock differences, I guess. You once told me, and I love this analogy and I want you to share it again. And I think this actually applies for athletes as they age and people like me as they age and and people who are just starting to work out. The beef jerky filet mignon warm-up analogy is one of my favorites. Can you talk about that? I always say that when we start out, we're like filet mignon. And when we're Mike Boyle's, stage of life. We are very much like beef jerky and that's really everybody kind of giggles, but it's a pretty good illustration yeah. for what happens to tissue quality. Most kids, like one of the things I would say, watch kids, they don't need to warm up, go to a middle school soccer game, 
kids can just start playing and nobody, you never see anybody pull a muscle at a middle school soccer game. It's really, really rare. Yeah. But we start this process of beef jerkyization, <laughs> if I could call it that, at a really early age. And that's why it's funny when I see kids, when someone brings me their kids, say, oh, they pulled their hip flexor, they pulled their hamstring. I'm like, whoa, hold the phone. I mean, that's, kids shouldn't have adult injuries. Kids don't, they shouldn't pull hip flexors. They shouldn't pull hamstrings. You shouldn't see really significant muscle strains in kids. It means that you're really overusing something in a particular pattern, which probably is starting that that transition of muscle fiber quality to towards the beef jerky side. And when you get old, I mean, that's the reality. I uh, somebody and I forget who it was, but somebody said one time that you should have one great day of warm up for every decade that you're alive. And I started to think about that and think, I mean, that's pretty accurate in terms of for me. I need to roll and stretch and move and warm up five or six days a week to feel good now. Whereas a kid who's 10, I need one. If he warms up one day, good. He's probably good for the rest of the week and can jump in a game whenever he wants. And as we move up through the, the stages, and I think that's the hard part because now we have professional athletes moving into the fourth decade. It's not that unusual to see yeah, at a time you would look at a guy like Brady and think, oh, that's never going to happen. No one's going to mm-hmm. play quarterback in the NFL at 40, whatever he is, two years old. But that's becoming more and more common yeah. where you'll see guys late into their 30s. You look at Chelios and some of these guys. Joe Thornton, I think, is 42 mm-hmm. now, and he's going to play another year in Florida. But these guys have to get much smarter as they get older about how they take care of their bodies. I mean, one, again, they got, they hit the genetic lottery to get that body to begin with but you still need to really work to maintain that body as you age. You also once said that when you're 20, it's five minutes that you warm up. And then every decade after that, you need to add five more minutes. I'm 43 now. And I certainly warm up for at least 15 minutes, probably a little bit more just because I'm paranoid. But I mean, is that still your general rule of thumb? Absolutely true. I have, I have a 70 year old client. I have one personal training client. I actually have two there, husband and wife who I've trained, I think since the nineties on and off. And we'll have days sometimes where we'll roll and stretch for a half hour. Yeah. And I let them, as long as he, if he keeps rolling and keeps stretching, I let him keep going because I firmly believe that is more important. We can go in the weight room and bang out one or two sets of four or five movement patterns and I'll be happy. But that ability to keep yourself mobile and to keep that tissue quality, to keep trying to, to put off the beef jerkyization, if we could call it that, is really, really important. How much in athletes does repetitive use and even injuries affect to the accelerated beef jerkyization of their bodies? Absolutely. I mean, it's a <laughs> huge part when you think about it because pitchers are the perfect example. Because you take a pitcher, we used to, I used to always joke with my pitchers. I was like, you know, you guys were all athletes once. Now you're pitchers. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of look and think, yeah, you're right. They do everything handed, one-sided, one direction over and over again. They overuse their shoulder. They overuse their elbow. And it's absolutely positively contributing to the, the change, the negative change in tissue quality that causes some of these guys to have the types of injuries and the types of surgeries. Think about Tommy John. What happens? I mean, your elbow basically yeah. fails. Yeah. That ulnar collateral ligament just eventually kind of shreds apart 
much like that idea when you think, okay, initially when you get that ligament, it's a nice, beautiful chunk of filet mignon that you can pull on. And then over time you look at it and think, now I just got this shitty piece of beef jerky that if I just keep yanking on it at some point, it's just going to shatter. That's, that's what happens. And that's then the, if you think about it, the doctors go in and overlap it and stitch it back together again, and then hope that we can through all kinds of different ways, massage and who knows PRP, all these other things that people are doing. Maybe we can bring that quality back to the point where you can squeeze a couple more years out of it. And the other thing that I think is important to note that there are so many kids who have Tommy John surgery in high school. They're teenagers with beef jerky ligaments because they've been using it so much, which it just says so much about the nature of overuse injuries. I do want to ask you, are there exercises that you think all people should do regardless of whether or not they're pros or not? I don't know if I'd say exercises. I think everybody should own a foam roller Mm -hmm. and should use it. So I don't view that as an exercise, but I do really believe I like to analogize that as ironing for your muscles. Mm -hmm. And if you think about as you get older, you develop more and more wrinkles and you can kind of the foam roll is going to help you to iron out. And we're not talking about wrinkles in your face or in your eyes, but you just, again, that tissue quality decreases and you can help to improve your tissue quality by performing self-massage which is what foam rolling really is. I think that everybody should stretch mm-hmm. except people that are already mobile. So excluding dancers, gymnasts, people like that, I think those people shouldn't stretch. So one of my friends had a really good line. Her, her name's Elvis, Elspeth Fino. And she said that everybody who's doing yoga shouldn't be and everybody who's not doing yoga shouldn't. I thought <laughs> a pretty accurate representation because the people that are doing yoga all the time are getting hypermobile are actually probably making themselves worse past a certain point. And the people that aren't doing it are getting worse because they're losing their mobility. It's, I always go back to kind of the Goldilocks and the three bears analogies. I love, I'm considering myself an analogist. I, although I don't know if that's actually a thing, but when you think about the, the three bears, you know, in there's three porridges and one's too hot and one's too cold and one's just right in training, there's a just right. And we should always be searching for just right and realizing that sort of too cold is just as bad as too hot. So too stiff is just as bad as too mobile. You want to be right in the middle. There are desirable, accurate ranges of motion that we should be able to achieve and getting more doesn't help and having less hurts. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to be looking at everything. It's kind of like in, from a fitness standpoint, I want somebody who's, reasonably fit. I don't want someone who's sedentary and unfit. I also don't want someone to run the Boston marathon because the person who runs the Boston marathon is going to be hurt. And the person who doesn't do anything is going to be unhealthy, probably from a metabolic standpoint. And that person who just kind of does their interval training three or four times a week is in the middle is going to be really good. So we are always, I think, striving for the middle. Are there, do you have tips for general people for just maintaining lean muscle as they get older? I can oversimplify this. Yeah. Tip one, find ways to do joint friendly weightlifting. And by joint friendly weightlifting, I mean finding exercises that make you feel better and not worse. So again, if I'm looking at average adults, I don't want them back squatting. I don't want them doing heavy deadlifts. I don't want them doing cleans. I don't even really probably want them doing a straight bar bench press. We're going to do lots of unilateral lower body work. We're going to do lots of pull down type stuff and rowing type stuff. We're going to do dumbbell bench presses, dumbbell incline presses, 
we're going to build a program around things that make your joints feel better as opposed to make your joints feel worse. Yeah. And we're going to try, I think initially you try to get stronger. And then as you get older, you try to not get weaker because that's the other thing that we realize is that the decline aging is undefeated. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, nobody lives forever. Unfortunately. <laughs> right. And the, but it's the reality. I look at some people and think, Hey, you can't roll the odometer back, but you might be able to stop. You might be able to slow the roll down a little bit. And hopefully again, and you've been in our gym. If you look at the people in our gym, they tend to all look significantly younger than they are. If I take people around and say, okay, that person's 70, that person's 60, that person's 50. Everybody's response is really, yeah. They all look different. I do believe, I think that strength training and interval training are probably the best chances you have to maybe roll that odometer back a little bit. For a long time, we were kind of selling fitness from the standpoint of, oh, just go for a walk, you know, go work in your garden, go. And I'm, I'm like, no, that's not accurate at all. That is the lowest common denominator. Yes. If you're completely sedentary, would I like you to go out for a walk? Yes. If you're completely sedentary, would I like you to go out and work in your garden? Yes. And rake leaves? Yes. But if you're looking to really roll the clock back or roll the odometer back, it needs to be a more aggressive process than that. But that aggressive process needs to be handled really well. You need to put yourself in the hands of somebody that is in fact an expert. And in our field, there's way more pseudo experts than experts. There's way more phonies then there are really legit people who know what they're doing. What life decisions should people be making about nutrition? Do you advocate a particular type of diet? I do not advocate a particular type of diet. I tell people all the time, I can give you, the nutrition lecture is extremely simple. Eat lean protein and vegetables. Nutrition lecture over. <laughs> Why yeah. is it so difficult to get people to do that? Uh, well, read End of Overeating if you want to understand why it's so difficult to do that. End of Overeating is a fascinating book. I read it. I probably read it 10 years ago now. But End of Overeating talks about the amount of money that's being spent to get you to eat badly. The amount of money that food companies are expending in order to get you to make bad food choices, the deck is so stacked against us from a nutritional standpoint that it's almost impossible to eat well. Because you've got all of these billion dollar companies who are trying to make things that taste really, really good. And they're making them taste good in a, I would say, an almost addictive way. So, in End of Overeating, they talk about the ideal food has sugar, salt, and fat in combination. <laughs> and that's what will make people overeat. Wellness is really bad for business. If everybody was healthy and nobody needed a joint replacement and nobody needed a spinal surgery and nobody needed a gastric bypass and nobody needed a heart stent, it's like the economy would come to a screeching halt if nobody needed all these drugs that they're giving us. My doctor, it's amazing. So I'm 60, I'm almost 62 and I don't take any prescription medications. What are the, um, you're saying you take a lot of supplements. What are the supplements that you recommend for everybody, athletes and regular I think people? Like everybody should take vitamin D. The vitamin D evidence is overwhelming. The fish oil evidence is pretty much overwhelming. I think everybody generally, if you are not, I am not a good fruit and vegetable person. So I will take what some people would call a whole food multivitamin, but basically they're fruit and vegetable extracts. I would take those. I still, I take glucosamine chondritin because it's 
again, there's people will say, well, there's not good evidence for joint support. And I said, well, the way I feel is good evidence for joint support. And mm -hmm. I don't mind swallowing two extra pills if that is going to be the case. So there's a lot. I take another plant sterile one, which is supposed to be for prostate health, which again is an issue, you know, for a male. I say every male is going to die of prostate cancer if he lives long enough. I want to ask you one more thing about the whole training and pros versus regular people. Obviously, when you started in this business, cryo chambers and infrared saunas, none of these things existed. What are the recovery tools that have come around lately that you think are beneficial for athletes, for regular people? And even if it's nothing fancy, like you mentioned, the foam roller, what do you think that people foam should roller. be doing? Foam roller? Yes. I think the massage guns, generally the, the response to the massage guns seems to be very positive. Again, from an evidence standpoint, what's it doing? I don't really know. <laughs> but I think sometimes when you say, I'm not sure what it's doing, but I feel better, be that placebo or science, I'll take it. I think hot tubs are still great. I think there's huge sauna evidence that's out there. Breathing. Breathing is one of those things. I used to make fun of the yoga people for talking about breath work. And again, the evidence for breath work really mounts. Even in the COVID situation, you're, you're making nitrous oxide in your nose. So nasal breathing is going to, in some people's views, be somewhat preventative for COVID because they were using nitrous oxide with COVID patients. But there's no question when you look at a deep breathing practice, something as simple as just a couple of minutes of nasal inhale, purse lip to exhale, is going to be really beneficial for people. So I think there's a lot of really super simple things you can do. Again, stretching. I think stretching gets a bad rap, but I don't see any way it can be bad for you. So I think if some people just said, hey, I'm going to warm up and I'm going to foam roll and I'm going to stretch and I'm going to do some breathing work that they'd be doing themselves a world of good if they combined that with simply trying. I think all you got to do from a nutritional standpoint is just try to make a little bit better choice. Yeah. At least... I think if you just stay out of McDonald's and Burger King and those types of places, I'm a big Chipotle fan. It's just not easy to eat well. It's a difficult thing. Eating well is a really big undertaking yeah. for most people. Mike, I love the stuff that you put out on Instagram, on Twitter. Mike puts on a lot of great information just on, on everything that we've been talking about. Where can people follow you? So Instagram, I am Michael underscore Boyle, 1959, the year of my birth. On uh, Twitter, I am at mboyle1959. And I like it. I, I enjoy the social media thing. I think it's a great way. I say to everybody, it's a great way to communicate with a really large amount of people all over the world for free. I think the social media has done, from a fitness standpoint, probably a lot of good and a lot of bad. Yeah. But more good than bad in terms of people just have to we always talk about the idea you got to become a good filter you've got to realize who the clowns are and not follow the clowns thanks so much to mike for joining us today in addition to following mike's personal social media you can also follow mike boyle strength and conditioning on both instagram and twitter at, at body by boyle for workout tips to help you train like the pros until next time for more information on food of the gods or to download other episodes visit us at at food of the gods podcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at Food of the Gods Pod or email us at, at Food of the Gods Podcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.